we invite you to take your bulletins. We will have two scripture readings this morning. The first coming from the epistle to the Romans, and it is a responsive reading. So as you read, make sure you read his word, but as it is being read to you, that you're reading it back to yourself and to those who are seated around you, because it is his word for his people. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, and then 35 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And now Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, 
where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. If you're visiting this morning, we have been working our way the last few months through the book of Revelation. Uh, We've had a wonderful time getting through this book. Uh, I have been teaching it with this in mind, not only that I would learn, but trying to make it uh, and trying to teach it in such a way that every person in this room, whoever hears, can look at that chapter and say, you know, I can tell you what the 13th chapter of Revelation says. Now, chapter 20, where we are now, is one of the most difficult, controversial passages in all of Scripture. If you took the great Bible scholars of the world, conservative Bible scholars, and you said, name, give us the five most difficult chapters in the Bible— Revelation chapter 20 would be on all their lists, I'm convinced. It may not be number one, it may not be number five, but it's going to be on everyone's list. It's that difficult. So I'm going through it slowly, giving us time to digest it. So this is a third message on Revelation 20. If you would like, you can go on our website if you're visiting, if you've missed the first two messages. You can go back after today's message and you'll I think you'll understand today's message on its own but it will help you uh, to have the background from the beginning of the chapter before we look at this passage verses 7 through 10 of Revelation 20 let's pray and ask the teacher ask the father himself to teach us because that's the only way we will learn. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you now as your priests. And in these last few weeks, we have been praying for Phil and Sally Halley. Father, we thank you that he's home. We continue to pray that you'll restore movement to his body, to his right and left sides. We thank you for the improvement that has been made Bless Sally as she puts the house in order, in order the hours and the days in her care for him. Father, provide for that family in every way, we pray. And bring healing 
Father, bring healing. We come in thanksgiving, even on our worst days. We're bathed in your grace and can always give thanks. Thank you, Father, for what you have done and what you will do. And now, our Father, we pray that you would teach us from this passage. Open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear you. Clarify what is said and taught in your word. Clarify in our minds. John Sartell can't do that. Oh, Father, you know that this is not just religious rhetoric on my part. You know that I know that I cannot teach so that anyone's heart is changed, so that any mind is convinced. Once more again this morning, Father, we're your children asking you to teach us. Teach us, Father. Teach us. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. The history of Satan from the incarnation to the return of Christ. Part 2. We looked at the first three verses of chapter 22 weeks ago. We titled those verses, The History of Satan from the Incarnation to the Return of Christ, Part 1. We asked three questions in that lesson about the scene that was set before us in those first three verses. First question, what does the thousand years mean? Second question, what does the binding of Satan mean? Third question, when and by whom was Satan bound? We understood the thousand years was merely a symbolic period, a symbolic long period of time. That's what it was. We say sometimes, that'll take a thousand years. We hadn't actually calculated it'll take a thousand years, but it may take two. It may take three. It's just a very long time. What does the binding of Satan mean? He begins with the sight of an angel descending from heaven. It's a strange scene. The angel has in his hands a key, a great key, and also a great chain. Now, these also are symbols. There's no physical chain that could bind Satan. There's no physical room that could hold him. Satan is a spiritual creature and is bound by a spiritual force. What do the abyss and chain then symbolize? When one is chained, he's restrained. When one is imprisoned, He's inhibited. He's restrained. The passage is not saying that Satan was destroyed. He was limited in what he could do. His power for that period of time was held in check. Did Satan's power continue during this time? Absolutely it continued during this time. Yes, but it was limited. And we'll see just how much. When we come to the end of the message today, we're going to see Satan unrestrained, and you will see the difference. Well, then, when and by whom was Satan bound? We learned that Satan's power and the rule and his rule on earth were restrained for this purpose, so that the church of Christ would grow to the ends of the earth. We saw and heard, looked up passages, and we saw and heard Jesus and the gospels speak of Satan being bound and restrained by him. He was restrained by Christ, the son of God and the son of man. 
In the incarnation, he invaded, he invaded Satan's territory. So it was by the power of the incarnation. It was by the power of his death and resurrection that Satan's reign and power were restrained. They were not eradicated. We know that we could list the evidence from the satanic Nero in the first century to the satanic Mao Zedong in the 20th century. You see, if Satan had been left unrestrained, he would have torn the church to shreds. Now that summarizes the first three verses. Then Jesus, after that third verse, and this happens so often in Scripture, then Jesus interrupts this story of Satan with another vision. There's sort of, you know, we're in a movie sometimes, and we come to an intermission. Well, this is intermission in this vision about the history of Satan. And he shows John a vision of heaven. And this is needed in the midst of severe persecution, in the midst of trouble. Well, what's happened to the saints? Where's the comfort? And John sees the saints who lived during that thousand-year symbolic period of time. John sees them in glory. And they're reigning with Christ. There's thrones involved, and they're reigning with Christ. Other places, Revelation, they have been singing with Christ or praying. But here, they were, it was a picture of them ruling with Christ. It was a most comforting picture. But see, it's, his, it's their souls that he sees. They weren't body and soul. They had died. But immediately upon their death, their souls had been raised from death to glory with Christ. John calls it actually the first resurrection in this passage, and it is. You think about that. You think about your, that wife, husband, father, mother, son or daughter that has died in Christ recently. Well, what this passage tells us is that that person right now is reigning with Christ in glory. Then after that intermission, Jesus continues with the story of Satan. Verses 7 through 10 describe his release, his unleashed power and reign and destruction. Now we're going, we will ask three questions again when we come to the, as we come to these verses. When does God remove the restraints that he has put on Satan? Secondly, why does God, rem, why does God remove the restraints? What sense does that make? Why, why does he re, remove the restraints he's put on Satan? And then thirdly, when and by whom is Satan destroyed? First, when does God remove the restraints he had put on Satan? Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. At the end, this comes at the end if we 
put it together with the rest of Scripture, it comes at the end of the Messianic age, the church age. That's where we are now. That's where we've been since the ascension of Christ, the Messianic age, when Jesus said his church would go to the ends of the earth. He says, after that, and before the second coming, Satan will be released for a period of time. In verse 3 earlier, when it talks about him being restrained, look back at verse 3 in your scripture sheet. It says, after that, he must be released for a little while. After the thousand-year period, the thousand-year symbolic time period, he'll be released for a little while, for a short time. And the short time will be brought to an end by the return of Christ. When does God remove the restraints he had put on Satan? We know that answer now. The end of the church age. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it would be interesting this afternoon, we've talked about the Antichrist before, and this is the age of the Antichrist. This is what's being described here. This short period of time, that's when the Antichrist will appear. It's come earlier in Revelation, but this is when it happens. This is an overlay, or in Revelation 13, where it speaks of the Antichrist, it's an overlay to this passage. It goes more in detail, so I would encourage you, even if you've been through this study with us this afternoon, sit down and read Revelation 13. You'll see some things you didn't see before about the Antichrist. So we know when he removes the strings. Why this? This is the question. Why does God remove the restraints he had put on Satan? Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sands of the sea, and they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. Notice it doesn't say here that Satan somehow by his wily way escaped the restraints or broke the restraints himself. No, he was released by the same authority and power that chained him. It says he will come to deceive the nations of the entire world, nations that are the four corners of the earth. It mentions Gog and Magog. What in the world is that? Well, you go back to Ezekiel 38 and 39, and Gog and Magog, Gog is a prince, Magog is a country ruled by the prince, and it's north of Assyria. And Gog and Magog, he, Gog was a wicked, wicked king. Magog was a wicked, wicked land. They hated Israel with a passion. Later in Judaism, uh, Gog and Magog, just if you said, well, that nation's Gog and Magog, you were saying they're enemies of God's people. And that's how it's used here. In Revelation, the names are used as symbols of nations that are enemies of God and his people. During the Cold War, during the 50s and 60s and 70s, Christians would look at this passage and they would want to identify Russia and China as Gog and Magog. I sent through so many sermons where the minister would say, well, that's Russia or that's China. Uh, 
rather than limiting it to one nation, we see here that's what we shouldn't do, limit it to one nation or two nations. We should, we should take the names Gog and Magog as signifying nations that are at odds with God's people. Nations and peoples that hate God's people and hate God and hate his word. It says here the four corners of the earth. That means the entire earth. The emphasis of Gog and Magog is not that they represent one certain nation, but all nations worldwide that will be mesmerized by the Antichrist. That's who it is. And this will be the time of the Antichrist. This will be when the beast and his prophet make their appearance. So let's revisit the description of the work of the Antichrist that we studied in Revelation 13. I'm going to stop here for a second. I'm going to help you a lot, those of you that have been in this study. And we've had about three battles that seem to mark the end of time, haven't we? One, chapter 16, the battle is mentioned. Then in chapter 19, Jesus comes forth and there's this battle where the, where the Antichrist and his prophet are slain. And then the battle that we see today. Well, what you need to do is put all those battles together. It's one battle. If you notice in reading scripture, it's the battle. It's not a battle. It's the battle. It is the final battle. And all through Revelation, we see this. You can't think about it as, well, this happens, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, and this will happen. No, he keeps laying over. Like when you take a map, we talked about this earlier, when we talked about the seven trumpets and that followed uh, the seven seals being removed. We talked about if you have a map, and uh, let's say this map is a topographical map uh, of an area. And so you've got a topography, and you can look at it and see the topography. Well, then you come along and you put a map of all the highways and roads that are on it. And it changes the map, doesn't it? It doesn't change the topography. It just changes your view. It's another way of looking at that area. Well, that's what happens in Revelation. And it happens with, uh, he talks about the Antichrist in chapter 13. And then you have these three battles. Well, think about them as one battle. It's only one battle. But it's looking at that one battle through a different lens or from a different angle. And the Antichrist, here he's in 13. And we take it up in 20 and you say, well, what's he doing in 20? I, he was in 13. Well, 13 is a description of what will happen. And this passage in chapter 20 is when it happens. So let's revisit that passage in 13. Look at it. Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's that short period of time. It, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also allowed, now look at this, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Not just a war, but to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Now stop right there for a minute. John, the person that wrote this, in the letters that he wrote the early church said there would be many antichrists. That's what they got from Jesus. 
what he and Paul both said that. There would be many antichrists. But John in Revelation says there's going to be at the one, of the one at the end that's going to be the antichrist of all antichrists. Now with these other antichrists arise, you can think of Hitler in Germany in the 20th century. You can think of Stalin in Russia in the 20th century. They were types of antichrist. But they didn't dominate the world. Look at this. Also it be allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer with them. Well certainly they did that in Russia or Germany where they were. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. That didn't happen. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not, has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb was slain. Or the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to let him hear. If anyone be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he will be slain. Here is a call for endurance. That's what Jesus said. It will take endurance to get through this. So Satan has been set free from the restraints God imposed, and he wrecks havoc on the earth through the Antichrist and the prophet of the Antichrist. Revelation 28 20 verse 8 says they will gather from the nations an army whose number is beyond imagination their number is like the sands of the sea the church as the people of God has been decimated they're vastly by this time outnumbered by this great army well what's he doing with this what's God doing in this release God is demonstrating that Satan has not changed, and he's demonstrating the power of his awful evil. But more than that, now here's what you need to hear. God is demonstrating the propensity of mankind towards sin and evil and rebellion. Now this is not popular preaching. We don't want that description of mankind, but all you have to do, there was a professor I had uh, in, in school, uh, he was in uh, many of, I don't, I guess this class is not being taught anymore, but when, in, when I was in college, every, every university, every college had a class called Western Civilization. And I was taking this class. The professor's name was Clayton. And he was a good teacher, really good teacher. And I enjoyed sitting in his class. He was not a believer. And he would argue about, he would, when he was, he would pick on us as Christians, and he would say, the doctrine of total depravity, that's just an awful, awful, awful thing. And he said, I can't believe that you believe the world is that bad. And I, you know, I was all of 17, 17 and a half, 18 years old. I, I couldn't, but then it hit me one day, and I couldn't wait to get back to his office and say, I've got an answer for you. He said, all right, pull out your Bible. I said, no, I'm not going to pull out my Bible. You already know what the Bible says. It talks about total depravity. And he said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, you see that book up there behind you on the shelf, The History of Western Civilization? He said, yes. I said, read it. That's all you need to do. That's all you need to do. Just look at the history of mankind. Look at the history of the 20th century. Mercy. 
All right. Paul's, remember Paul's description of mankind in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3? Look at it on your scripture sheet. He's talking to the church at Ephesus. These people are now Christians. And he says, you were dead in your former lives. You were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked following the course of this world. Following, look, it says following the course of this world. Okay. But what does he add? Following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. What's he saying in that passage? He's saying two things that you need to know. That every Christian, this is basic Christian doctrine. Sin, evil, and rebellion are innate in the heart of fallen man. Period. It's innate. It's born in this. Man fell. Something happened when man disobeyed God. The second thing. Mankind, this is. This passage is saying mankind has a natural allegiance to Satan in his way. Wow. We want to say man has evolved into something better. We want to say in the 20th century man has come of age. That's what my professor was saying. Look at our education. All these universities, all these people going through. Said, look at, look at our wealth. We can use all these modern inventions we've created and we'll alleviate poverty. And we can, we can use our education to create healthy social conditions. Well, folks, wave your magic wand and make all poverty go away. Make all poverty go away. Look at the wealthy around us. Do they not have sin natures? Are they without sin? All the wealth in the world completely destroy poverty. And it won't change the sinful heart of man. Now I'll prove it to you. Go. Look how wealthy we are in East Memphis. Are we not sinners? Terrible sinners. Wave your magic wand. Give everybody an education. That's not going to change the human heart. Are our universities less sinful than the uneducated segment of our society? You know better than that. Most of our universities have an unmitigated hatred for God and his word. We've said it over and over again. We do live in a modern age. We do fly airplanes, even spaceships. Modern medicine has prolonged our lives. Modern convenience have made every part of our lives easier. This week, I got a new microphone. Terry's microwave died. And we went without a microwave for about 10 days. You can't believe how disruptive that is. How many times I walked to the microwave and just forgot, opened the door. I was going, you know, just use it all the time. I like it. But has modernity changed the heart of man? Has it put an end to war? 
to hatred, to prejudice, to adultery. Modernity just made genocide easier in Germany and Russia and China in the 20th century when 100 million people were killed. Genocide on an incredible level. What was basic to those evil regimes that ruled those countries? Hatred for God. Has modernity brought about less sexual immorality in the 21st century in the United States? Has it? Has modernity brought about less sexual perversity in the 21st century in the United States? No. Our culture saturated with it. But oh, we've dealt with it so easily. We've got... What, what did we do? We've just said, well, such sordid sexual behavior is really not a sin. It's a choice. It's sexual freedom. It's sexual diversity. In fact, conservatives or churches are told, don't you call that a sin. Don't you dare call it a sin. That's offensive. Such behavior is flaunted on television and in the cinema hourly. It will be on display certainly this afternoon. That's a description. And he'll prove it one more time when he unleashes Satan. The whole world will follow him. What will be the church's response to this brief time of the most severe and thirst persecution the body of Christ has ever experienced in the history of mankind, not in Russia, not in China, nowhere? Has this cruelty, has cruelty been seen like will be seen during this period? Look at that. Look at verse 10 of chapter 13. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivities, goes anyone to be slain with the sword, with the sword he will be slain. So, I want to ask you a question. I lived with this sermon all week long. It's hard, isn't it? Here's a question. Would our pulpits our congregations stand up under the intimidating onslaught that this will bring. What will happen? What will happen to Christ's covenant to this pulpit? What will happen with the people of God in Memphis? When the culture of the Antichrist came to Germany under Hitler, when the culture of the Antichrist came to Russia under Lenin and Stalin, Lenin and Stalin, when the culture of the Antichrist came to China and to Mayo, the churches and ministers did one of two things. One choice was they compromised. They compromised until the church was no longer recognizable because it looked so much like the world. 
You know, hunters wear camouflage when they're hunting. Camo. Why? They want to blend into their surroundings so that they cannot be seen. That's the great temptation of the church whenever it finds itself in an antichrist culture. Oh, the church begins to say things like, we must learn to communicate with this culture. We must keep the ties with this culture. We must become more affable with the culture. Let's get along. Soon such churches and individuals look and sound more like the culture than they do like the church or like an individual Christian. The camouflage church or Christian may save their lives physically, but they will no longer be either the church or a Christian. The other choice that was made in Russia and China and Germany and made wherever persecution is, the other choice is to stand firm on God's word and not give an inch to speak and live God's truth in the midst of the Antichrist culture. Millions, yes, millions of Christians, your brothers and sisters, chose prison and death in Germany and Russia and China. They read the verse in Revelation 13.10. If anyone wants to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone wants to be slain by the sword, by the sword, he will be slain. I'm reading a book presently by a man named Eric Metaxas. He's a Presbyterian. He's reformed. He was the author of the bestseller biography on Dedrick Bonhoeffer, simply called Bonhoeffer. Maybe you've read that book. It's a wonderful book. Well, the book I'm reading by Metaxas now is A Letter to the American Church, and it's very disturbing. Metaxas is comparing our society today with the society of Germany in the 1930s when Hitler was coming to power. There's an amazing parallel between that church and the evangelical church in this land. We're prone to hear sermons like this and think, well, when things get that bad, John, you can count on me. I'm going to stand. When it's life or death situation, I will stand. If we do not stand with God's word, or stand with Jesus, when it only means that we might be ostracized socially. If we stand with Jesus, we're going to get ostracized socially. Uh, I, you know, I can compromise there. Be the object of laughter or scorn in school or at the university. Oh, I can, you know, I'll get along there. I don't have to stand, make that stall, make that firm of a stand. Or maybe it might be losing a job if I stand with Christ. Some of you have experienced that. It's easy to compromise in those situations. But if we, comp if we compromise in those situations, I want to ask you a question. 
what in the world makes you think or makes us think we're going to stand when standing means death or prison? If we don't stand in the more lenient places, in the places where it's not life or death, if we won't stand in those places, don't kid yourself, we're not going to stand when it means jail or death. <laughs> Remember Daniel, first chapter of Daniel, he gets down in Babylon. He's supposed to hold on to his faith. And the Babylonian said, took him into the court and said, we want you to eat our food. Daniel said, that food's unclean. I'm not going to touch it. Now, most of the people from Israel that were down there in that situation, they did eat it. But he stood in that place that didn't seem to be so consequential. But when they came after him and said, you continue to pray, we're going to throw you in the lion's den. He said, take me to the lion's den. I'm going to keep praying. And he stood in the small places first. All right, we're done. Why does God remove the restraints he had put on Satan? To demonstrate the continued wickedness in a world that thinks it's come of age. Finally, when and by whom was Satan destroyed? We're, look at this and we're done. And they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. The church, God's people, did not destroy Satan. We can't. We can't. Remember in chapter 19 when Christ rode forth? It's the same battle. Same battle as in 20. Christ rides forth, but the emphasis there only is the destruction of the Antichrist and his prophet. It wasn't that great army that destroyed them. It was by the breath of the mouth of Jesus Christ they were destroyed. Jesus spoke. We said it this morning in singing Luther's great hymn. One little word will fail them. He has only to speak. Well, here the fire comes down from heaven. It's not the church that destroys him. We don't have that power. Well, Satan and his forces were destroyed. The story of the evil one that first made himself known in Genesis, his story is brought to an end in Revelation 20. You know, I, I can't imagine my life without sin. What's it? What, what's it like not to lie, not to tell the little white lies? What's it like to be without arrogance, to be without prejudice, to be without anger and hatred? What's, I can't imagine. Think, try to think this afternoon. What's it like to live without sin? And one day we're going to be there. When this transformation is completed. And what's it like to live in a world that knows no Satan? When I see the evil of Satan in this world, reading the history, just the history of the 20th century, all the Antichrist, all the death, the misery. 
When I see the world dancing in Satan's parade, I can't imagine what the world will look like when Satan is gone. He is no more. I can't imagine. I can only say, come Lord Jesus. Come and bring that glorious day. Amen. Our hymn is most appropriate, hymn 477. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the mighty Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.